Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hey, everybody. It's Joe, host of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Can you believe I am almost to show 100? Now, with the 90 shows that I've recorded to this point, I'm sure that there has to be at least one success story, maybe two, hopefully more than two. What I want to do for my 100th show is to highlight some of these success stories that have come from this podcast. That could be somebody who is a past guest who wants to highlight a deal that came from being on the show or potentially a listener or viewer who has heard of a company, decided to go and invest or heard of something and that turned into some type of business transaction. Something along those lines, I want to highlight those stories or if you want to just call in and wish me some some well wishes or you want to call in and say that you want more of a specific type of show, or you just want to say congratulations for reaching 100 episodes and still doing this, you can also do that. I'm going to listen to this. I'll probably re-record it, but if not, you will hear all of this for the next few episodes. And if you get sick of it, it's roughly two minutes long, so you can just skip through it. All right. Thanks, y'all. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Now today, the show is going to look a little bit different. Any of you who follow me on social media know that recently I was at Texas A&M University. While I was there, I did three different things. The first was I gave a talk all about geothermal energy to the the A&M student group chapter of ARMA, which stands for American Rock Mechanics Association. It's a right. It's a almost a total guess. I would call it educated. So I gave a talk to them about geothermal energy. I also moderated a panel for the A&M SPE student chapter. Also, again, about geothermal energy, the new things that are coming up in geothermal energy and the the kind of a, a look at the expectations for geothermal energy growth versus the realities and the realities of the new technology development. And then the final thing that I did is I was on as a guest for the Texas A&M SPE student chapter podcast that they have. I will include a link in the show notes to their podcast. And so that way you can 
hear this same exact conversation, but then also they've had five other guests, maybe even more by the time this episode drops. But this introduction here, so what this show is going to be is is that conversation that I had with them talking about geothermal energy, talking about the role of geothermal energy into the future, and then what the podcast was focused on was what students need to learn to kind of get into geothermal energy. And then also, I was asking some questions about how prepared these students feel, really specifically the student who was on the show, Kassam, how he felt about being prepared to enter the workforce and enter specifically energy transition areas. So it's a little bit different. It's more of a back and forth, and it's actually me in the hot seat for most of the episode. I hope you enjoy this. I will be doing several more speaking engagements, and hopefully we'll get more of these where it's not just me interviewing a guest, but it's more of a conversation that is being had that you get to then listen in on. If you want those kind of episodes, let me know. Send me an email. Thank you to the recent thank you to the recent reviews that I've gotten telling me you want more more carbon sequestration and more more of that kind of conversation and thank you to the people who are reaching out directly with potential guests. I'm very excited. I also will have another blurb in here talking about what I want to do around the 100 episode mark or two year mark, how I want to highlight conversations. So please remember to reach out and send me those conversations as well. And, and anything that you've gotten out of this podcast. Now, we're not going to have a typical outro. So I am just going to thank you now. Thank you for listening in on this episode and thank you for for being with me for almost two years now. If you are enjoying this show, please share with a friend and leave a review. Tell me what you're enjoying most, what you'd like to hear more of, or just kind of what you're getting out of it. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we do have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. Remember, there is a link in the show notes to do a quick one-question survey for me. If you go and fill that out, I can send you some stickers. So please go fill that out and look forward to getting those stickers. And then finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. Until next time, remember to keep it low carbon, high energy, and now let's get to the show. Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Texas A&M University Society of Petroleum Engineers Energy Matters Podcast. My name is Qasim, and I'm your co-host of today's episode on geothermal energy, industry readiness, and role of academia. In this special podcast, we have also a special guest, Dr. Joseph Batir, the geothermal lead at Petrolearn. Um, if you are not familiar with Joseph, who's also a podcaster and a uh, like an expert in geothermal energy, you will know a lot of um, his insights about this topic today and many more. 
before getting started, let me introduce our speaker. Uh, Dr. Joseph Petir is PetroLearn's lead geothermal geoscientist with over 10 years of geothermal experience, specializing in data mining, thermal resource characterization, numerical modeling, and geospatial analysis. Dr. Batir has performed geothermal projects throughout the continental United States, Alaska, Africa, Iceland, in areas of lower temperature, higher temperature, and enhanced geothermal systems. Uh, during his PhD and postdoctoral studies in the SMU Geothermal Lab, he collaborated with national laboratories, universities, oil and gas companies, geothermal companies, and mining companies. Dr. Batir was awarded a Bachelor of Science in Geology from Southern Illinois University, a Master of Science in Geothermal Energy from the School for Renewable Energy Science, and a PhD in Geophysics from Southern Methodist University. Dr. Batir, thank you so much for this opportunity. We really appreciate your presence here. Um, we have three events this semester with you, which is great. So uh, please uh, uh, tell us more about your uh, background, your education, and what made you interested in the oil and gas? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on your show today and for inviting me and scheduling all of these events here at Texas A&M University. I think this is where you put in the obligatory whoop or hoop or, or <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know what it is because I'm not hoop. an Aggie. <laughs> yeah, you can say howdy, this is good. You can say gigam. These are Aggie terms. So <laughs> Great. Well, I will leave the Aggie terms to you, right. and I'll go ahead and explain or give you my background. So as you said, the, the bachelor's from Southern Illinois University, master's from, from RES, as we call it, the School for Renewable Energy Science, and then the PhD from SMU, uh, to, to give you that kind of large-scale background, my what I did going into higher education when I was going to get my bachelor's was I wanted to be outside. Mm -hmm. I wanted to do something science-related, and I also wanted to find a way to combine those while also producing something, something of value for society. And... Through a through the series of and and kind of discovery process, looking for where I wanted to go to school, ended up on Southern Illinois because it was just far enough away from home mm -hmm. that I felt like I was getting that independence. I also had rocks that I could go and look at. They were a simple twenty or thirty minute drive, and and then landed in on energy because obviously energy energy is what makes the world go round. Mm -hmm. So right now, a lot of the majority of our energy is hydrocarbon based or fossil fuel based. But what I've done focusing in on geothermal and really focused on geothermal, really the, the majority or 90% of my career has been geothermal related because it, I think it, it combines all of these different aspects of what I want to do and, and providing that energy, but also does it in a way that is environmentally sustainable. And it kind of ticks all the boxes where you have that energy, that energy that, that is baseload, reliable, 
provides the needs for that that area of society, but then it also has the long-term sustainability, that being it's a green energy source. So as we talk about things like climate change, this is part of the solution. If we want to go back to the, the, if we want to keep warming at 1.5 Celsius, if we want to sequester carbon and stop putting as much carbon into the atmosphere, this is one of the ways that we can do it is by producing more geothermal energy. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I landed on that. And I think that you could always go and, and read about Southern Illinois, read about res or SMU, but I think more importantly is the why on how I got to where I was. Yeah. So I think that that's where I'll stop unless you have a specific question that you want to dig into more on that. Uh, we will focus more about your um, experience uh, in the next uh, question. Uh, but yeah, obviously your passion, your love for geology, and like your ability to learn and new stuff made you uh, dig more into the geothermal aspect. So you had that, maybe that goal that yep. you will be one of the leaders in this and hopefully we'll see you at bigger and bigger positions in the future in yes yeah absolutely now before we get off of the introductions i also do want to say for for my audience because as as i said in our in my in my little introduction we are doing this mashup episode Mm -hmm. so here we have kasam on the show and please I'm not going to pronounce your name right, so I want you to introduce yourself for my audience and tell them who you are, what you do, why you started your podcast, the Energy Matters Podcast. All right. Thank you, Joe. Um, my name is Qasim Alokla. Uh, I'm from Lebanon, from Middle East. Um, I'm currently doing my PhD in petroleum engineering at Texas A&M University. And I'm also uh, serving as the current president of the uh, Texas A&M Society of Petroleum Engineers student chapter. So we here at Texas A&M, we're very um, active as SPE uh, society. That's why uh, we thought that it's a good opportunity to focus on um, energy transition topics because, you know, now the oil and gas industry is inclined more about uh, topics related to energy transition, energy evolution, low carbon solution, net zero emissions and this stuff. So uh, the idea came uh, from um, like that concept. We need to approach more audience. So most of our events are in person. So we usually host people in our department, like uh, representative from different companies, SME, uh, SMEs, uh, executives, leaders. So we thought that by having such podcast, we can do the virtual option and maybe approach people from different parts in the world, from different states. And this will like broaden our disciplines, our aspects, and then will bring more benefits to our uh, audience. Most of the audience are students. So students will be more interested about um, like pursuing a career in the energy industry and also to learn more about different aspects. It's not oil and gas only. We can approach other topics that are related and that needs our skill as petroleum engineers. So yeah, that was like a, a brief uh, introduction about me. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I, I definitely like the aspect of you have the in-person events, the reason I'm here in College Station right now, and then you also have the podcast so that kind of anybody can get 
a taste of it and exactly. start seeing the value there. Exactly. One question before I start answering questions, on a scale of one to 10, mm -hmm. how much of this is for your benefit, meaning the students themselves, like how much are you really getting out of these versus how much are you trying to kind of spread science education and industry knowledge? So by you, you are saying me or the students? The students in general, because I, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll say 100%, I would say a nine or a 10. Like the reason to do this is definitely you should selfishly be inviting as many smart people as you can so that you guys can learn from them. Exactly. I think that's a absolute necessity yeah. almost. But but I'm sure that, that you are more altruistic than I am. <laughs> so how much do you guys get out of it versus how much do you see the benefit for the... Um, for the greater community. Yeah, I think we can rate it as eight over 10. We're still at the beginning. <laughs> we still have bigger dreams and bigger hopes out of this uh, podcast series. But the major benefit is that we are approaching different companies. We are approaching um, different leaders and from different uh, countries, from different disciplines. So I think this is like the major aspect. So we usually get people to our department from maybe from Houston, from Dallas, from Austin, the area like around college station but with this podcast it gives us like an opportunity to approach different people from um, different states and also it brings like to the students the idea of like more motivation about the energy industry and they will get like house like other companies are thinking about is just like not only the academia but also like the industry wise and house our industry is evolving in such topics which are really getting a big interest right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I think um, like eight of ten is out of ten is, yeah. is, is a good, is a very good uh, yep. rate yep. right now. Absolutely. So I think that I will stop asking my questions because you sure. have a list of questions to ask yep. me. <laughs> All right, perfect. Uh, let me start with my questions. So you are currently working at Petroler, which is a consulting company working mainly on the energy industry. So first of all, could you please tell us what's Petroler as a consulting company, what you guys are doing, what projects are you currently conducting? I know that you are very active. I am following your uh, LinkedIn uh, page. You are very active in energy transition, especially topics. So could you please tell us more about the company and what's like the goal for the future? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So PetroLearn started in a, in 2014. Mm -hmm. Now that it started a little bit sooner, but 2014 was incorporated in in the U.S., and it started really as a high, high technical professional training company. Mm -hmm. So that's where the PetroLearn comes from. And it was started by our CEO, Hamid Saroush. He is a world expert in geomechanics. Mm -hmm. And basically he was teaching courses on these very complex geomechanical situations and how to go about solving your wellbore stability problems or these geomechanical conundrums that you couldn't have answers to. And from that very technical training, ultimately companies were saying, hey, can you just come do this for us? Because mm -hmm. we see the value, we see your expertise, 
can you please just help us? <laughs> and so it very quickly evolved from just a training company into training and Projects. almost boutique consulting okay. in the geomechanical space. Mm -hmm. And so that was 2014. Fast forward to about 2018, 2019. And that's kind of the, the new energy transition. Some people are calling it energy transition 2.0 because that's when you start seeing a resurgence of talk topics like geothermal topics like ccus hydrogen solar wind and and you see this influx of money into the energy transition mm -hmm. and what we saw was that there is all of this money there are all these new ideas there's a new interest in ccus in geothermal but all of the technical expertise that has been developed over over a century in oil and gas to understand the subsurface that hasn't fully made that transition or made that transfer into these other subsurface disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so that's where Hamid saw this and he started to started to figure out how to answering those questions. How do we transfer this very technical industry knowledge we have into these new spaces. Mm -hmm. So how do we understand the geomechanics of an unconventional field mm -hmm. and apply that into CCUS or apply that into enhanced geothermal systems? So it, it morphed the company from boutique consulting and training into almost more of an R&D group. Okay. So we do a lot of new technology development, mm -hmm. specifically focused on making projects more cost-effective, more more profitable through optimized power production. Okay. So that's kind of our focus right now is is developing these new technologies that will ultimately enable our clients to have better results. Okay. And so that that's kind of what PetroLearn is today. Mm -hmm. And some of the projects we're working on, now there's a lot of them that we can't talk about because okay, they sure. they are with clients, they're confidential. The one that I'm really excited about that I that I can, I guess, talk about is Carbon Watch. Mm -hmm. So that's a phase two small business innovation research grant that we were just awarded. That is one where we are developing a technology that essentially can take the existing data that we look at for carbon plume monitoring, mm -hmm. that being seismic or distributed fiber optics, taking that data and expediting the understanding of what we do or where that CO2 plume is. Okay. So that's one that's really exciting that we, we were just awarded and we just announced it on LinkedIn a, maybe a few weeks ago or a month ago. I, I guess I don't know when this podcast will drop, but it was it was prior to this podcast. <laughs> and then another project that we did that we were starting to present more. We'll be presenting it kind of in this in this next wave of conferences mm -hmm. is our Wyoming report. Okay. So we did a a geothermal assessment for the Wyoming Energy Office mm -hmm. and basically we were looking at the wells that they had to say which wells and which areas have the highest 
possibility for geothermal energy. And we just want you to do kind of a first pass, what's existing and where the where are the things that could be done today? Okay. And so we we made some recommendations, made some some highlights for them in that. And I think there's it seems like every other week Wyoming comes up in conversation, whether it's a buddy who is looking at the Powder River Basin for for the next unconventional, or whether it's discussions about hydrogen hubs. Mm-hmm. So Wyoming, I think, is a very interesting place, and I'm just excited that that we we were lucky enough to be kind of ahead of that, saying here's the geothermal resource. Now we have this ready to show you if you want to start incorporating geothermal, and I think that's that's going to be another part of Wyoming having kind of being this big large energy state. Oh, that, so, that's really great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, first of all, congratulations on the Carbon Watch uh, Award. And you guys are really doing a great job, especially on these uh, topics. So, yeah, a great job. And hopefully you will see more achievements uh, from your side and from the company. Uh, working as Pet- at PetroLearn, um, could you please tell us how did you start? What was like the previous role before joining PetroLearn? Yeah, before I joined PetroLearn, I was in academia. Okay. So I I went to Southern Methodist University to to earn my PhD. It was in geophysics. It was all thermal numerical modeling focused on very early stage kind of tectonic scale thermal regime understanding. Okay. So explaining what the surface heat flow is telling us about the way the the regions evolved. Okay. That's what I did for my PhD. Stayed at SMU for another three or four years in a research slash postdoc kind of role. Mm-hmm. We kept getting asked about projects. We kept getting asked, hey, can you can you look at this for us? Or there would be a new grant come out and people would call us saying, hey, we we really want SMU on the team. So ultimately that morphed into me being this this researcher mm-hmm. doing very similar work, but now doing it in slightly slightly more refined and, and focused areas. Okay. And that work, so my PhD was all Alaska based. Mm-hmm. And then from there I worked on Texas, California, the Snake River Plain in Idaho, and and intermixed in there had other other um, consulting projects. So while I was doing that research, I was also consulting with a number of companies looking at different areas worldwide. Mm-hmm. So it was, that's what I was doing prior to PetroLearn. The one thing though, that I think is a, is a, is almost a disconnect between academia and industry is that in some ways, they move at very different paces. Okay. Yeah, so that's true. for the for the academic world and and for the work I was doing, the main goal there was ultimately getting that work published mm-hmm. and getting it out there to show everybody. And then once it's published, unless there's funding, that that project stops. stops. Uh, right. And so there were things that I would do, I would be very excited about them and I I would have to drop it 
and move on to the next one. And then I, when I first started at PetroLearn, or maybe right before, I had finally gotten a call five years after my PhD. Somebody wanted to ask me a question about it. I was like, wow, <laughs> this is so exciting. Exactly. Yeah. But then I was like, wow, it takes five years for all of that hard work to finally get used. So I started to see the value of going into the industry mm -hmm. because comparatively, the industry moves fast. Exactly. So there are projects that are you start it and you have a decision on whether you're going to drill a well or whether you're going to invest more money within two months. And then it's like, okay, in these two months, now we're going to go drill a well. Now, say six months later, now are we going to build a power plant? And within, within that same five-year time frame, when I published to when I finally got a phone call, that same five-year time frame, you could go from, from no idea about a resource to green electrons on the grid. Exactly. Now, that's, that's an expedited path, mm -hmm. but it's possible. And I think that's the really cool part about industry is that you see what you're doing and you see it immediately making an impact. Mm -hmm. So that's why I started looking for other opportunities. And I actually, the, the first thing that I did with PetroLearn was I, I volunteered to read one of their reports that as a peer review that they were going to be submitting to a client. And from that volunteering to read that, that turned into helping them with some of their geothermal projects and ultimately turned into me getting hired. That's great. That's great. Um, I really appreciate uh, your comments regarding your job. Uh, one last personal question related to your job. So what's your most and least favorite part of your job? The most and least favorite part. Ooh, that is a, that is a tricky tricky question so i will say it's a lot easier to know the least favorite part mm -hmm. the least favorite part of my job is is feeling like i am i am begging people for work mm -hmm. because ultimately we're all we're all in the energy industry we all want to see more energy produced mm -hmm. because that energy getting produced is ultimately better for society. Exactly. So what I want to see is for every single one of my clients to succeed. I want to help them do better. I want to help them get more energy out of the ground. But ultimately, the the hard part there is that, that I do need to get paid for it. So ultimately, I, I do need to ask for some money in order to help you. And that is just it. I don't, I, I don't like having to do that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be feeling like I'm begging people to, to give me work because ultimately I just want everybody to succeed. Exactly. Uh -huh. So that's the least favorite part. I think my favorite part is, is knowing the impact that I'm making. So there are, there are a lot of, projects that we've worked on where we can see what value would be brought mm -hmm. if they were to be able to produce geothermal energy yeah. and what value either to the company or to that local region on 
ultimately what that energy means or for something like carbon watch what understanding the the ccus and the sequestration implications are Mm -hmm. for that region that is what really excites me is seeing that that value and that impact driver of how this will actually change lives great i really like both answers thank you so much and now let's dig more into our topic today which is geothermal energy so first of all before starting with the geothermal energy now we are hearing a lot of terms including energy transition energy evolution energy mix energy addition so based on your opinion or based on your knowledge do you think energy transition is really happening there is a like now a balance that should be achieved between energy security which is provided by the oil and gas industry we know that oil and gas is an available resource that we can use daily and on the other side we have the energy or the sustainability so we need to take care of our climate and we need to um, try to reduce the climate change uh, reduce uh, emissions and so on so what what perspective do you have here in terms of the balance that can be achieved between both aspect energy transition which is energy security and sustainability yeah so is the energy transition happening i think the answer is yes mm-hmm. i think there it's yes but it may not look the same way that everybody was thinking okay. or the way that that it was portrayed mm-hmm. meaning all of this wind and all of the solar ultimately taking over and everybody driving electric vehicles. I don't think that that is is really what is happening. You do see a lot of that. But one thing that that we do see also in headlines are that, at least in the U.S., there are coal plants that are being decommissioned. Mm -hmm. So those coal plants being decommissioned, they are getting replaced by something. Most of those some things that are that are replacing it are are natural gas peaker plants. Exactly. So this transition is occurring. There is more natural gas that is being put on right now, and I think there will be more more wind, more solar, and more energy storage. Mm-hmm. And the energy storage, I think, is going to be that key factor that once there is once there's a a significant portion of energy storage, now we will start seeing the grid really shifting towards almost an even balance or or more renewable energy mm-hmm. than fossil fuels. So, so yes, the energy transition is happening, but it is not it's not what people originally were thinking. Okay. And there was a second part to that question. What was that second part? So how can we achieve the balance between energy security and sustainability and like cl- protecting our environment? Yes. Yeah. So I think that that is, that is a tricky question because we definitely need that energy security. We need resiliency and we need, we need to, to be meeting those those energy demands exactly. and right now that's done with fossil fuels mm-hmm. the the way that we are trying to to expedite that 
into both having a a a clean energy grid while also having resiliency and energy security we're trying to do that with batteries mm-hmm. and and the short duration energy storage i think ultimately one of those key components that we're going to need is long duration energy storage and my personal favorite is subsurface energy storage either thermal energy storage or there's there's a lot of different mechanical energy storage ideas out there as well mm-hmm. i won't get too much into all of that but i really think that is going to be one of those key technologies that help us get to that point of having lots of renewable energy while also meeting those sustainability goals yep and i think the other aspect is is also is also going to be uh CCUS mm-hmm. and and specifically the sequestration or the S part of that because we are going to continue using natural gas the I think call it pound for pound or CO2 ton for ton yes the greatest change that we can have in the fastest way is going from coal to natural gas that is something we could do we could permit we could get that done in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Whereas the process to to build and permit kind of everything else, I think probably takes longer. Exactly. So we're going to keep using natural gas. What we need to do is we also need to be capturing the CO2 and sequestering it. Mm-hmm. And that is something that that I'm excited to see all of the work that's being done in that space because if we want to get to if we want to keep the climate under the 1.5 Celsius, we actually do need to remove carbon from the atmosphere. So we do need to drop our current CO2 level. And, and really there's, there's only one way to do that is sequestering carbon. Yeah, I agree with that. But the problem here or the challenge here is the volume of carbon that we need to sequester, which is huge. Yes, yeah, that is... That is something that most people don't think about or don't realize, just how much larger the amount of sequestration we need exactly. compared to what we're doing today. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, this uh, takes me to the next question, which is related to oil and gas companies. So you know that oil and gas companies are responsible for a big percentage of the carbon emissions out there, right? throw out the different operations done either if they are operators or service companies and we are held accountable to reduce uh, these uh, emissions and currently like most i don't i won't say most but a majority of oil and gas companies for example here in texas are taking the responsibility and the initiative in order to expand uh, their horizon and start investing in different low carbon solution projects so could you please tell us more about how oil and gas companies can play a role in the energy transition while continuing their legacy in providing energy to the societies at the same time like reducing the carbon emissions or reaching the target of net zero emissions by 2050 2060 or whatever yeah so i think that the the best way to do that is first and foremost having more efficient oil and gas production. Mm -hmm. So as they increase efficiencies, 
because those are those are already aspects that they're working on that is a way to to start reducing the amount of of co2 that you have to remove to reach a net zero goal so that's the first and foremost Mm -hmm. but from there i think that a lot of people don't think about or don't have the time to think about what are the opportunities that are coming with the energy transition and all of this discussion about these low carbon energies. So take geothermal, for example, and specifically enhanced geothermal systems. What is an enhanced geothermal system? It is drilling a well and getting into hot rock that is impermeable. Mm -hmm. Yes. It may have water there. It may not. Let's assume it does have water there, but it can't move. So then you stimulate that well, i.e. frack it. Mm -hmm. You open up a pore space. You create a fracture network that can now flow that water. And now you drill a second well that intersects that fracture network. So pretty much every one of those key components in that is, is... going to come directly from unconventional oil and gas production. Yes, true. So that is a an opportunity where every oil and gas company can apply their skills, apply their their personnel and directly move into a low carbon energy production. And I think that is one of those it may be longer term mm-hmm. in order to make that transition versus efficiency. But I think that is something that I'm seeing more of with these larger oil and gas companies, establishing low carbon technology groups to start seeing where and how they can start getting in. And I think ultimately many of these companies are going to stand up individual groups that focus on these different technologies. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think you summarized it correctly when you mentioned about the skills that the oil and gas companies have and like the investments or the budget that they can provide in addition to the personnel who can work all together on achieving the um, the target of reducing all the emissions from the atmosphere. Um, now let's move to geothermal, which is your favorite part of this topic today. <laughs> yes. So for those who are not familiar with geothermal, could you please... Uh, just summarize in geothermal 101 for, yes for so everyone. S- simply put yep. what geothermal is is it is it is thermal energy the heat that is within the earth so it's the heat beneath our feet and producing that energy is as simple as drilling a well getting that hot water and producing it up you can use geothermal energy anywhere from from low temperatures of kind of ambient background temperatures. You could use that for heating and cooling of your house with a little bit of technology at the surface called a geothermal heat pump. Mm-hmm. But then you could use a little bit higher temperature, say something anywhere from 100 degrees Fahrenheit up to 200 or 300 degrees Fahrenheit. You could use that for heating things like a municipal pool Mm -hmm. or large-scale district heating in a community sort of sense. And then you can go even higher than that in temperature, anywhere from 
250 Fahrenheit up to 500 or 600 degrees Fahrenheit, and you can use that to generate electricity. Yep. So the key components are where where is that heat? Is there water to move that heat? And now are there fractures and are there pore spaces? Are there are there avenues to get that heat and that water to move? Mm-hmm. So that's what geothermal is right. in in the simplest terms that I can explain it. Thank you, thank you. And I really appreciate your effort on LinkedIn. You have the Geothermal Thursday, right? Yep, Thermal Thursdays. Thermal (laughs) Thursday, yeah, sure. You usually post like some terms related to geothermal energy, some definitions, which is really cool. And this will give like some insights about this uh, topic to everyone. So yeah, thank you so much. So one one follow-up question. So here you are saying that like, if I want to like have a conclusion, do you think that uh, geothermal energy can be easier to be like applied or generated out of conventional uh, resources compared to unconventional resources because you, you don't want, for example, to frack the formation? For like, oil and gas conventional resources? Yeah. It, so I, I think so, mm-hmm. but... This is a, a similar topic to what I presented last night to the, the ARMA student group, mm-hmm. that when we're talking about oil and gas co-production, there is one interesting component that we, we have to remember is that those wells were, were first and originally drilled for oil and gas production. Yes. So there's ultimately going to be... There's going to be... Um, constraints or almost handicaps that are given to us because those wells were never intended for geothermal energy. Exactly. Now they're, they do have higher porosity, higher permeability. So the ability to move fluids is definitely easier, mm-hmm. but I think it's going to require a different thought process for future future understanding of are we drilling wells for the idea of co-production from the first, from the onset, mm-hmm. or are we trying to, or do we need to plan a recompletion for these wells and plan that specifically for geothermal? I think there, there are challenges from that regard okay. that, that haven't been fully fleshed out yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So yeah, actually my second question was about the challenges. So you are saying that maybe changing or transforming um, oil and gas wells into geothermal wells is one of the challenges right now. Um, This will also include like surface facilities, retrofitting, uh, pipelines and this stuff. So if you want to go into the other side, which is like the legal aspects, what type of constraints we are having, for example, here in United States. So are there like like the full okay to go and drill geothermal wells or there are some cons- like restrictions to, to that? Yeah. Especially this like depends on each state like the Yeah, so it it is a state by state basis. Okay. And speaking just to Texas right now, mm-hmm. one of the big conversations is who owns the heat mm-hmm. because that's the resource you're producing. You're you're ultimately extracting heat from the subsurface and using that to to 
either to do whatever you're doing yeah. at, at the surface. So that is a legal question of who owns that. Mm -hmm. And that is still, I think that is ultimately going to be something that does need to be figured out. Yeah. There are ways around it. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm not a, I'm not a legal expert. Mm -hmm. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal <laughs> advice, but I do think the easiest way is to just kind of sign up leases with everybody, mm -hmm. anybody who owns anything in the location you're looking at, that's the easiest way. Cause then you know, for sure you have the rights to that, that heat, but there are other ways that maybe you can produce that heat mm -hmm. that that ultimately my guess is that un, until there is a until there is legal action taken we're probably still going to have this be kind of a question mark mm -hmm. and i think one of the aspects as to why is that the majority of geothermal production today is on federal lands. Yeah. So that's easy. Yeah. That's very understandable. It's the federal government. It's on Bureau of Land Management land and you've got that one property owner to deal with. But in Texas, Texas there's there's more it is more often than not that you're going to have property being held by private owners. Yes. That's so true. that that is where now you have to start getting into those legal aspects. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think that's why we haven't really dealt with these legal questions yet. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So we covered the technical part in terms of challenges. The we touched on the legal part. How about the economics and the cost of drilling these geothermal wells and generating geothermal energy? So, yeah, is, is it a challenge? Yeah, so I think that that is it's definitely a challenge. Mm -hmm. That is where where the geothermal industry is today mm -hmm. is the the projects that have been done are the low hanging fruit, so to speak. Yeah, those are the ones that were always economic. That's why they were completed. That's why they are commercial power plants. There are some that haven't been found yet. Yeah which ultimately is an exploration question. How much money are you going to spend exploring for these projects until you can go and drill them? And then when we start talking about things like, like enhanced geothermal systems, there you are talking about deeper wells. You're talking about stimulating those wells. And anybody who is listening who has looked at any type of unconventional well can have a ballpark on on drilling costs and stimulation costs for for deep wells in yeah. the unconventional space. It may be similar for geothermal wells. Mm -hmm. Don't quote me on that, but I think that is one of those big questions. And here we're talking about chasing hot water. We're not looking for oil or gas. Yeah. Those are 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 commodities that have that have high values exactly. per barrel. Whereas the hot water, the equivalent that I've heard is we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about pennies per barrel. Yeah. So the equivalent amount when we when we do a geothermal project, we look for a good well being anything north of fifty thousand barrels a day. So that's the kind of flow rates you need to make the economics work. Yeah. And 
So I think that 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 is one of the key questions that's trying to be answered right now. And you can see that also from what the Department of Energy is funding through funding opportunity announcements. Mm -hmm. You've got a recent announcement made that is specifically looking at enhanced geothermal systems. And I think it was, I think it may have been more than 84 million, but 84 million is jumping to mind for some reason. And then there, there was a project or a funding announcement last year specifically focused on enhancing or expediting drilling. So they wanted to see a 25% increase in drilling rate. Mm -hmm. And the, the key reason there is because the faster you can drill, the more money you can save. So ultimately, all of these ideas are trying to drive down cost. Exactly. And the, sorry, I, I didn't finish my thought on the EGS FOA. The whole idea of this EGS FOA is to build a demonstration project and then demonstrate how that can be economic. Okay. So ultimately, all of these ideas are, are pushing the boundaries of what are those key challenges for, for geothermal? And now let's, let's subsidize finding solutions mm-hmm. exactly yeah yeah i think these uh, these incentives will encourage a lot of oil and gas companies also to to dig deep into uh, geothermal uh, systems and investigate more especially in investing in talents in in, in skills and also uh, like different types of projects that can uh, deal with geothermal aspect um, so let's let's move to the next question which is how like how how much will you assess like the percentage of energy that can be like gotten out of the geothermal energy if you want like a pie chart how much like 20% 50% that is so right now I want to say it is it's on the order of of 1 to 2% -hmm. I think that and there are estimates there's the geovision report that was published in 2021, mm-hmm. I believe. And that targeted, it said that we should be trying to get 60 gigawatts of geothermal energy by 2050. Okay. And I may have those numbers wrong, but it's it's one of those main headlines. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of of energy that that ends up being is pretty significant as far as the pie chart. I think there's a, a another larger pie chart that we have to think about, that being the amount, the total energy used. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about total energy, on that, there's estimates anywhere from 40 to 60% is heating and cooling of homes. Yes, that's true. If we could use geothermal, whether that's geothermal heat pumps, or direct use geothermal, or in in some cases you could use absorption chilling using geothermal. So you can generate just hot, just cold, or ambient condition hot and cold. Mm-hmm. All of that, you could reduce your electricity use by by a factor of, of four. Okay. So your geothermal heat pumps are four times more efficient than something like a an electric resistance heater. And that now can look at that 40 to 
start decarbonizing that using geothermal, mm -hmm. which I, you have that plus the electricity. Now you start looking at the larger pie. And, and I, I would be bold enough to say, I think geothermal could account for maybe even 50% of that. Wow. Now I, I said, I'm being bold in saying that, but I really think that if we are ambitious and, and really go after it, mm -hmm. we could do that. Okay, perfect. I hope so. And yeah, this drives a lot of uh, interest and a lot of excitement into this field. And yeah, hopefully we will get like f very equipped for the future when we are tackling with uh, geothermal aspects. Um, let's move into like another part of the equation. What do you think about the role of startups here? geothermal energy we have witnessed a large increase of startups especially in topics related to carbon storage uh, hydrogen storage hydrogen generation geothermal energy so what role they can play in promoting such topics yeah yeah so i will i'll to the petrol learn horn a little bit here because we i mean we started in 2014 but we definitely are a we run like a startup. Mm -hmm. We are more of a startup than, than I would say we are a, a large company. Okay. And the role that I would say we play is developing new technology to expedite projects and to make projects more profitable. That's the same role that you see with the other operating companies in the geothermal space. All of them are either applying new technology to make their projects cheaper or to de-risk their projects, or they are setting up new ideas, new business models, or new, new target resource areas mm -hmm. to ultimately say, let's, let's use these new ideas to develop opportunities. Yeah. And I think that that is that the role is, it, it's almost like we are, we are in this new age of wildcatting in the in the geothermal space, mm -hmm. trying to find the resources, trying to find a business model that makes those resources most profitable. Mm -hmm. And ultimately that that isn't something that you see the larger oil and gas companies doing yeah. because it it is higher risk. Mm -hmm. There is a a a level of risk involved there that in 10 years, I hope we're all still around in geothermal, and I hope there's even more startups. Yep. But ultimately, I think that that we do have to we do have to face the music. We do have to realize like there probably will be one or two of us that fail. Yeah, that's true. And like, I don't want that. I don't want to see that from anybody, which is why we want to help everybody. But I think that that is a it is a possibility. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yep. Thank you for sharing this. Um, so we covered um, the some or almost all aspects of geothermal. We touched based on the technical side, economics, legal aspect, startups, uh, the challenges. One last part, I think, will be academia. So, which is an interesting topic here. So, what do you think, academia? especially um, engineering majors like petroleum engineering, chemical engineering, geology, 
uh, energy engineering should do in order to well prepare their students or undergrads or graduate students to be well equipped with the skills that are needed by companies right now to like start working actually on projects related to energy transition especially geothermal energy which is the focus of our podcast today yeah i think that i think that academia is almost more important now than maybe when i started 10 years ago mm-hmm. because right now we have gone through several downturns we went through a pandemic mm-hmm. And what you see from the energy industry as a whole is a lot of exodus of knowledge and of, of, of personnel and workforce in general. And how are we going to refill those spots? That is ultimately, I think, going to come from the bottom up, yeah. refilling from new graduates and refilling from people who are excited about energy. Yeah. So... I think academia needs to, there's two different roles that that they play there. There is teaching the fundamentals so that you have that fundamental scientific understanding of how things work Mm -hmm. so that you can apply that elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And then there, there is the almost the necessity to show that we kind of need all of it and we need all of this energy so that society can keep moving in the way it is. Yeah. Okay, perfect. How about the research and this topic and driving more innovation and getting like different solutions or new uh, ideas that can, for example, produce more geothermal energy, reduce the challenges and this stuff. So what do you yeah. think about this? Yeah, I think that is the research aspect is is very very important Mm -hmm. there that is one of the things that i i loved about my time in academia is that i would have a question or somebody on the team would have a question and we would spend some time going down that rabbit hole trying to find an answer and oftentimes at the at the end of that, you find a dead end and it's nothing. Yeah. But other times you end up finding something very important. And in some of the past research that, that I worked on, we ended up finding correlations that I now see getting incorporated into other studies and really trying to, trying to make better, better maps and make, better resource estimates. Mm -hmm. So I think that academia has to, they have to continue asking those questions of does this work or why doesn't this work or why does that data point look funny? Mm -hmm. Like those are the questions that when you're in the industry, you don't really have time to really pursue those answers. You have to take the fundamental research that was done and now find ways to apply it and apply it to make things work better, faster, cheaper. Mm-hmm. So I think that the role of research is to really establish those fundamentals that are still necessary and there's still fundamental questions to be answered and find, and then the industry component of that is to 
take those, be able to find those, and now apply those exactly. into the real world. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, thank you so much for sharing this. Um, I think the second part of this will be your questions, right? So, especially focusing on the academia since we are now touching on. So, do you have any question for me before we go into the final remarks? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, we just talked about the role of academia mm -hmm. in the energy transition mm -hmm. and from your perspective so what what year are you in your phd right now so i'm in my second year of my phd i'm currently taking courses along of along with like doing research my current research is around energy transition which is more into the modeling aspect of the carbon capture and storage so yeah but i'm not far from geothermal so you you don't know maybe I will do something related to geothermal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. So you're in your second year and you're focused on carbon storage. Now with that, I think there's there's a few different. I guess the the first question to ask is if a company like Ormat or Fervo or somebody who is working in CO2, like Carbon America or Milestone Carbon. Mm -hmm. If one of those called you right now and said, hey, I need you to quit your studies and come work for me. I need somebody right now to start doing this project. Mm -hmm. Do you feel prepared to do that? Well... At this stage of my research, like being in the second year, I don't think I'm very well prepared for that because there these industries or these technologies are evolving every day and there are many like technologies that are like driven into the industry each day. So in order to keep up with this, you need, I think, at least one or two more years of research so that you can go there and like prove yourself as like a well-rounded engineer. So I previously did an internship in uh, related to CCUS and that project was also um, like a DOEU project and it got awarded uh, $12 million, 12, yeah, $12 million here in Texas, in Corpus Christi. And it's gonna start like the actual um, drilling of the, uh, like the, the first well uh, for exploration not for the sequestration because you know they for CCUS um, sequestration you have you need the classic permits and it takes a lot of time but I think with the education I'm equipped to to do an internship that will prove uh, my abilities and skills however to get like a full time I think we need more to touch into the fine topics and like very specified topics for example in CCS modeling which is a big challenge now for sequestration especially that when you're dealing with CO2 you have uh, like the sailing capacity and how much CO2 can be stored and the plume migration as you mentioned in your um, carbon watch project with BetterLearn so with education I think we have the enough knowledge about topics that are related to energy transition for example next semester we are having the first time offered course in ccs for undergraduate students so 
we are not only focusing on oil and gas courses. Uh, most of the energy transition topics are dedicated to graduate students because they need more research and and the students in undergraduate level are basically doing their petrophysics, their reservoir courses, production, drilling, and so on, of course, the geology. But the department is now working very hard in order to integrate energy transition into the uh, into the uh, curriculum here at Texas A&M. That's why next semester we are having this U.S. course. Uh, this semester we are having uh, another course which is taught for graduate students. It's uh, on combination between uh, the course is name the course name is sustainability it it covers topics related to hydrogen storage uh, geothermal energy uh, carbon capture and storage so it's it's it covers the whole topic and i i think now even oil and gas companies are offering such courses for their uh, engineers they have expertise in reservoir drilling production but they are entering into you mentioned about creating a segment related to low carbon solution, most oil and gas companies. And they are doing almost the same thing. They are getting experts in low um, carbon management or uh, CCS or geothermal energy in order to introduce these topics to their employees. What we are doing now at Texas A&M, I think, is a great uh, approach into uh, preparing the students for that, uh, especially not only focusing on the graduate students, but also the undergrads. But of course, as I mentioned, uh, we need to be more specific into uh, these topics. And this is the purpose of a master's degree or a PhD degree that will prepare you very well to to pursue a, like a job at a very reputable company and then like prove yourself and prove that your education was not just like uh, courses. Yeah. You, you will have an impact in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's always definitely important to get all of that information, all of that fundamental knowledge mm -hmm. and really the beyond the fundamentals of the intricacies and the nuances of every specific area. That's mm -hmm. why we have geochemistry and mineralogy and exactly. petrology exactly. and petroleum systems. Mm -hmm. one, one thought or one question about this is the, the, um, the importance or the, that push and pull or the dichotomy of lab work mm -hmm. versus computer modeling and computer work. Mm -hmm. Because right now, I think there, we see a lot of discussion about machine learning and yes. a lot of ideas about let's use the data we have. We already have so much data. Mm -hmm. Data is the new the new oil. Let's use all of it. Mm -hmm. But I think to your point, there are we're we're pushing frontiers, mm -hmm. and there are fundamental physical earth science questions that still don't have answers. Mm -hmm. So. What do you see here? What is emphasized more from the academic world today? Mm -hmm. Is it more you need to do this fundamental lab-based research? Or is it let's apply these, let's build numerical models, let's try and understand to the best of our ability given what we know? Mm -hmm. um, I think we have a combination of everything. We have a big number of uh, professors. We have professor of practice, we have research professors, and each one of them is focusing 
or covering a different uh, topic in the industry, whether it is oil and gas, we are very uh, devoted to um, hydraulic fracturing topics, fiber optics, uh, geomechanics, either on the modeling side or in the lab work. So we have uh, labs that are specified to do fiber optics stuff related to um, unconventionals. Um, the other part is also related to energy transition. I know that we are recently, like we recently started like tackling um, energy transition topics, but uh, the number of professors who are really doing a, a like research on that area is increasing day after day. So we have, you can say, a total of six or seven professors who are really uh, working on uh, um, energy transition, either hydrogen storage, carbon capture, um, um, also and geothermal energy but the other part which is uh, the data science I think we are one of the top universities that are covering topics related to data science application of machine learning so we have I can say more than seven to eight professors who are doing applications of machine learning and data science related either to energy transition topic or also to uh, like typical oil and gas uh, applications. So we have also courses that are directly related to uh, data science and machine learning. We have two graduate courses related to machine learning and one also undergraduate courses uh, course on this uh, on this discipline. So I think the 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 awareness on the importance of data is increasing day after day and the undergraduates are aware. We also have a data science degree or data science certificate. So if you are a petroleum engineer, you can take some courses from the department and also from other departments and then you will get a certificate in mm. uh, data science for oil and gas, which is really um, a great initiative and this will like, add more to the student CV, especially when they want to do an internship or when they go to an internship or a full-time so this will prove their capabilities not only in the knowledge related to their discipline or oil and gas but also to uh, the needs of the industry right now which is mm-hmm. automation uh, data science and machine learning yep yep very cool so one last question on this topic if you if you were department chair you could control anything mm-hmm. What is what is the one change that you would make to help prepare prepare your students for a I guess right now a tumultuous time where the next five or ten years aren't so clear in terms of an energy career? Okay, this is a tricky question, and I hope that <laughs> no one will listen to this. So, no, uh, I think uh, as a department head, I will uh, integrate more uh, cooperation between different departments. So, petroleum engineering and chemical engineering, petroleum engineering and geology are very related. So, maybe um, create a minor, for example, a minor in petroleum geology or a minor in chemical engineering that will add more to the um, knowledge of the students and their experience. So this will diversify their profile and they'll add more value to their resumes. Uh, For example, let's let's say carbon capture and storage. So 
half of the equation is related to the storage which requires through the flow and porous media reservoir engineering simulation mnemonic and modeling but the other part which is the most challenging part is capturing the co2 so in order to capture the co2 you need the facilities you need the pipelines you need the direct air capture these all these yeah. technologies require basic knowledge in at least in chemical engineering right so uh, i think having like a petroleum engineer with the knowledge that includes other uh, or like basic knowledge of other uh, majors including for example as i mentioned chemical geology mechanical engineering so this will uh, this will like prove that our graduate students are very well equipped to join the industry either it is in uh, like normal oil and gas application or uh, energy transition and i want to mention another thing here um, which is related to the organization that I'm representing today, TAMO, Texas A&M University, Society of Petroleum Engineers. So in addition to the department efforts uh, to uh, promote energy transition topics and equip the students well with all the knowledge, uh, we as an organization are focusing a lot on these topics. For example, this podcast is uh, one of the initiatives that we did in order to bring more interest to the students. So sometimes the students will be motivated by having an industry professional coming like you today. Uh, we are having a panel discussion this afternoon uh, where we have uh, like the president of uh, a company, we have the vice president, we have a, a geoscience lead, and we also have um, like a faculty uh, professor. So the students will be motivated when they listen to professionals from outside the industry. And this will add like more... Um, like this will motivate them not only to take courses but also to think more about protecting the environment and how their role as a petroleum engineer can help in this energy transition you mentioned before that uh, you the most uh, favorable part of your job is to uh, like when you see that your work is having an impact and i think this should be um, the focus for our student they should know that their job and their education will impact the world either in providing energy uh, energy security but also with the skills that they have and um, all the knowledge that they will get they can achieve also other targets which is protecting the environment and uh, achieving li like better lives for other people not only here in the united states but also all over the world because you know, the oil and gas industry or the energy industry is very well connected all over the world. So anything that happens here will impact other places all over the world. So, yeah, I think uh, this might be one of the suggestions or uh, yeah. ambitions if I am a department head. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that as I was looking through the calendar mm -hmm. and all of the different different industry representation that you bring to campus here in at A&M, I think it is very exciting. And, and to your point, what you're saying, as you are hearing that what you're learning matters and how you're going to apply that knowledge, that that matters for society, I think that is ultimately going to be the best motivation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great that, that y'all are bringing in all of these industry professionals to tell you that. Because I think it, it maybe this isn't a good comparison, but I... I definitely remember when when I was in school, I would listen to my professors mostly, 
but I would always listen to the guest speakers. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I would listen extra closely to the guest speakers from industry. Yeah. And I think that's very similar to us with like our parents where we like, yeah, sure, our parents maybe know what they're talking about, but your friend's parents, they definitely know. So you definitely listen to them. Mm-hmm. It's always like that. Once you get a few degrees of separation out, then it's like, oh, well, this is somebody else telling me the same thing. They must know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's definitely very exciting to hear that. Thank you. Well, with that, this is where I would transition into my final questions. And it looks like you also have some final remarks. So do you do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Uh, I think I would go first. All so right. I just have one question for you. So in your position now as a geothermal lead and in this evolving industry and this like, unprecedented time that we are witnessing right now, what advice you have for uh, current petroleum engineers or energy engineers in terms of skills, in terms of topics that they should focus on, in terms of interest, or just like a daily uh, advice for them? I think the advice I would give is... There's a, there's a lot of different things. I think there's, there's several different ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of presenting as much and as often as you can, mm-hmm. which is, I think, in, in an academic setting, that could be conferences, that could be presenting to fellow students, that could be presenting on campus at pitch competitions. Mm-hmm. That's something we didn't have when I was when I was in school. Mm-hmm. So those kind of ideas, just getting an opportunity to present, to get feedback, and to start thinking about new ways or new parts or aspects of your own research mm-hmm. and of the energy industry. That's one aspect. The other aspect I would say is, is and this is <laughs> kind of silly, but like do something on social media, mm-hmm. whether that's starting your LinkedIn page, starting a podcast, starting an Instagram where you post your your rock collection. I think it's important for the energy industry to be to be more mainstream. Okay. I mean, all of us are the the entire world. Most of us use energy every day. Yes, the people who don't are in energy poverty and that is a detriment to their life. Exactly. So there are there are these things that we take for granted like being able to turn our lights on, being able to jump in our car and drive from Dallas to College Station and doing that in a car because I don't want to wait on a bus or wait on a plane. Yeah. I want to have the freedom to do it whenever I want to. So those are things that I think we take for granted mm-hmm. that we need to we need to realize that that isn't necessarily normal. Like those are the that's special mm-hmm. and we either need to make it not special for the world or we need to recognize and appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was so yeah, that going back to like talk about what you're researching, talk about why it's important figure out why it's important to society and and be willing to celebrate it. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
The only other thing that I would say is also read some things that are not necessarily what you're working on. One thing that that I find fascinating is the idea of hydrogen storage. Mm -hmm. That's one that that I have never worked on, but it is something that is very interesting to me. And there, so that's something that I think is like looking at other ideas and then thinking about, oh, what do I do and how does that apply here? You'll realize that there's a lot of similarities in what your core knowledge is and what your skill sets are and how you can apply those into other areas. Mm -hmm. So I think reading other things is important. All right, perfect. That's really cool. So know your, uh, if I want to uh, like summarize this, first of all, uh, present at each uh, opportunity. Uh, have uh, like an online presence, either on LinkedIn, podcast, Instagram. Uh, know the worth or the importance of your work and keep the motivation in order to uh, continue and aspire for more and more. Uh, goals, right? Yep. All right. Perfect. Yep. Uh, I think that's it from my side. If you have any questions from your side, I will be ready to. All right. Answer. Well, yeah, I think we need to get into the final questions then. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. Mm -hmm. The first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Oh, um, the favorite book, I think, for me, what keeps me motivated is um, You Are a Badass Every Day. Um, it's one of the top uh, uh, New York uh, top selling books. I don't know if you have heard about it, but it's really a great source of motivation for me. I've read it like three times and it keeps me, because you know, as a PhD student, it's up and downs, right? And yep. you will, uh, sometimes you will doubt yourself. You, you will have a lack of confidence. You will have bad times. Uh, you So you need uh, that type of uh, motivation. And I think books are really great resource for us. So I don't believe in laptops. I don't believe on tabs. I don't believe on phones. Books are always like my greatest friend. So uh, reading that book really is uh like it changed my life and whenever like i i see the book like on my shelf i oh you helped me one time <laughs> so yeah i think that book was uh, a great source of motivation um it gives you advice every day on how to continue chasing your dreams um, achieving what you have decided to achieve uh, learning from failure because failure is one of the treasures that we have in our life so being a failure is not something bad it will make you a leader in the future so mm -hmm. i think that that book is really uh, a good book that i recommend everyone to read all right that is a great one and i will add that to the show notes now the next question is when will we be net zero as a society oh that's a tricky question <laughs> hmm um, so you're talking about net zero emissions, right? Or yes. Just whatever that means to you. Oh, uh, I do believe that we are having uh, the resources available for us 
um, the incentives uh, from the government as an industry. Uh, we have the talents and we have the motivation. Um, the only thing that we are lacking right now, I think the cooperation between companies and from the other side, which is academia. So in order to achieve net zero emissions by 2050, as we are um, or are claiming to, um, I think there should be more cooperation between academia and uh, companies in terms of hiring students for internships, hiring students for uh, projects that the companies will sponsor and then um, this will open more horizons for innovation and uh, like putting these concepts in the students' mind so that they will explore more, innovate more. And the other side is like the, co- the cooperation that should happen between the companies themselves, service providers, operators, startups, um, consulting companies. So the cooperation that can happen between these companies will also change the equation and also uh, achieve the target of achieving or reaching net zero emissions by 2050. I hope uh, this will uh, guarantee a job <laughs> from now till then. But uh, yeah, it's it's really an amazing time that we are witnessing right now. It's, it's The oil and gas industry is has always its up and downs, but there will always a, a space for innovation, uh, for more research, more uh, more work, and more passion for mm-hmm. engineers and also for academic academia people. So yeah, I think um, I would say twenty fifty. I hope. All right. <laughs> yeah, that is a it's a good, well thought out answer. So now the last question is usually I give my guests an opportunity to ask me a question, but you've been peppering me <laughs> all morning here. But do you have any more questions for me? Um, but now you only get one more. <laughs> yeah, this is my last question. Um, I think my question to you uh, would be if you are um, the CEO of a company and you are chose uh, you had like you have the choice of either changing the profile of the company to be an energy transition project-based company or doing more innovation to extract more oil from unconventionals increase the percentage of oil that you can get so which option would you choose this is a tricky question i know yeah that is a that's a tricky question if i think there there's so there's two different sides to this my the majority of of my career and my focus has always been geothermal. Mm-hmm. So if there is a company who calls me up and says, Joe, you're the CEO, mm-hmm. what are you going to do? I think there are, I think I, I would obviously be interested in geothermal mm-hmm. and we would be transitioning as much as we could to geothermal. Mm-hmm. But, I think that there are so many ideas and technologies and ways to combine different ideas into into existing infrastructure that 
I think that I think that if I was put in charge and CEO of of an incumbent energy company that has a bunch of oil and gas assets, I think in five years that company would look very different, Mm. but it may not have gotten rid of any of those assets. I think that's the easiest way to put it. Mm -hmm. We may have added Mm -hmm. geothermal assets. We may have added a lot of additional components to those existing assets, but I don't know if that would have changed how much oil and gas we would be producing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. It's a, because I think there, I think that the, I'm, to elaborate a little bit more, I am always pro utilizing the infrastructure that's already there. Okay. That is one of my main things, mm-hmm. reduce, reuse, recycle. Mm-hmm. And one of those is, is I guess the fourth R is repurpose. Mm-hmm. And with all of the existing infrastructure, if there is a way to repurpose that, that is, that is always one of my, it, I always check that before going to the recycling or going to the, the, I guess recycling is is the last one. Okay. So yeah, always always interested in repurposing, and I think that's that's one of the focuses right now is how do we repurpose a lot of this infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Others call it retrofitting, but mm-hmm. as we talk about blending hydrogen into natural gas pipelines, that's really what we're talking about is how do we start repurposing this mm-hmm. this infrastructure? Mm-hmm. And I think that would be one of my first thoughts is we're producing all of these hydrocarbons. How can we repurpose this once these wells are no longer economic? Mm-hmm. And does it make economic sense to expedite that repurposing process? Okay. I really like the answer. So you are a true believer of energy mix at the same time, reducing costs in order to achieve the whole uh, goal of Combining everything, geothermal with hydrocarbon, with hydrogen, energy, and everything. Now, if you were to say, here is half a billion dollars to start an energy company, I've got got a few pins on a map that I would go and and develop geothermal projects. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a difference between yesterday I, in a conversation, I was... I use the example of an old car versus a brand new car. Now, if you give me an old car, there are certain things that I'm going to do to that car to make it the best I can. But if you give me a lump sum of money and say, okay, go buy the best car you can, I'm probably going to buy a new car. So it's, it, it's almost like you have to do, you have to do the best you can with the hand you're dealt. Mm-hmm. All right. Perfect. Thank you for sharing all of these uh, information and insights. Um, do you want to end this, or I would do this? Well, I think that I think this is a a great ending point. I'm going to let you end it. I will. I'll cut in my little outro. Mm-hmm. But thank you. 
for inviting me and thank you for also letting me post this on my show. Thank you so much, Dr. Batir. Really appreciate your help and your support in being present the whole week at College Station. I know there is like few things to do here <laughs> in College Station, but yeah, we really appreciate your presence. We always aspire to have people like you joining us, especially that uh, you understand like the um, the capabilities of the students and you are you graduated I think recently like it's not that you are still young <laughs> so uh, so you are like aware of the needs of the industry in terms of the student skills and um, the combination that can happen between the academia and the industry so thank you so much for uh, your time today we'll see you in around six hours or five hours from now where you are going to be moderating a panel discussion related to geothermal energy as well so looking forward to that uh, panel discussion and thank you again yep thank you thank you for having me on the show join us again next week for another low carbon high energy story on the energy transition solutions podcast a production of the oil and gas global network learn more at oggn.com